Hello and welcome to another edition of the Money Mitch Effect. I'm your host, Mitch Michaels, and thank you for listening to this sports podcast. Got a great show playing for you today. A lot of playoff talk, hockey, and the NBA. Let's get to it. First up, my buddy Bradford Bruns talking basketball. The Cavs lose game one in a beatdown fashion to the Pacers. Are they in trouble? Is the East wide open? Pacers and Heat split their series. We recorded this yesterday, so a lot of talk there. And are we just gearing up for the inevitable showdown between the Warriors and the Rockets? Can the Pelicans make things interesting? The Thunder? We talked about that and more. And then Tyler Tesson calls in to discuss the NHL playoffs. It's been an interesting one. We recorded this on Monday before Vegas swept the Kings. Blue Jackets Capitals been an epic series. We talk about that and more. We also talk about Des Bryant and some NFL news leading up to the draft. It's the Money Mitch Effect. Hope you're having a good day. Let's start the show. All right, making his long overdue return to the show to talk some hoops, the NBA playoffs. It's Bradford Bruns out of St. Louis. Bradford, welcome back to the Money Mitch Effect. I can honestly say the show's missed you a little bit in your long absence. Well, Mitch, thank you so much, buddy. It's always a pleasure to get back on with you and to finally be able to dig into, to delve into some playoff round ball for crying out loud. That is long overdue. It has been over the course of the past a few months or so. We're finally to that point, the regular season, all of the precursor elements, the pop and circumstance down to actual action on the floor and try as I might. I'm still having a bit of a tough time. I'm reeling somewhat following the events at the queue over the weekend. Yeah, I want to actually start there, and I, for one, am thrilled that there's no confidence picks in this podcast, so I can actually have some confidence in this podcast, but that's uh, that's Ditto. another time or day. It was uh, another another rough bowl season for the both of us this time. But Bradford, <laughs> in, the, in the NBA, this has uh, been an interesting uh, first couple of games in all these series, and I want to start with that game in Cleveland where the Cavs got just lambasted it was it was not even close i think 98 to 80 was the final and i want to ask you this question first we know it's the best of game series we know that the Cavs have lebron and kevin loves healthy and and they can definitely come back mm-hmm. and win this game but at any point before or after this now game one were you worried about the Cavs' vulnerability are, are you any more worried now that they might not win the eastern conference I think in the grand scheme of things, quite frankly, what Game 1 did more than anything else, Mitch, was actually just exposed to me or revealed to me, and probably, let's be honest, by and large, the nation, just how dangerous of a team and outfit this ever-young Indiana squad can actually be. So as far as preliminary tests are concerned, I believe now that is definitely the forefront of any fan in Cleveland's consciousness, and also those who are still stumping for and championing, obviously, the prospect's of LeBron's team trying to make that eight consecutive finals appearance. The fact that you didn't see Indiana really with any consistency on the national television schedule, that you weren't aware necessarily of the supporting cast members surrounding Victor Oladipo, well, that was an eye-opener in so many different respects over the weekend. The team speed, the acceleration, the ability to get up and down the floor and then also communicate defensively and execute so many things quite well, Mitch, that simply are not there for Cleveland that haven't been there for the vast majority of the season. This is a team that went through 82 games of the regular season, 
mixed and matched various parts, still trying to integrate some of those parts for the very first time as you're entering the playoffs, and yet you still have no semblance of a defensive identity. That didn't surprise me as far as the miscommunication, the inability to close off, to run Indiana shooters off the three-point line over the weekend, but it is sobering to think about that, and if you consider the long-term prospect, I simply don't know if you can expect an extended, extended run because of the shortcomings specifically on that end of the floor. There is so much to get ready to be able to adjust in terms of just preparing for game number two in Cleveland that you do, I think, have to be concerned to a certain extent. The Herculean efforts of LeBron James are going to be there. Kevin Lum is going to shoot the ball markedly better. But as far as getting gouged by Oladipo and company, as far as surrendering a lot of points, you're going to have to have just a plethora of supreme offensive performances, I think, to counter that, regardless of whether you're talking about coming back versus Indiana in this series or, for that matter, venturing down that playoff road. Right. Well, that's an interesting point to bring up, an interesting interesting way to look at it, that maybe this game told us how good Indiana was, that we didn't see him on a national mm-hmm. stage. And, and it was Oladipo's coming out party and an Indiana Pacers team that I talked about last week. Even with Miles Turner not really having a great year, still could do a lot of things and be a very damaging team. Here's one reason why I would say this game would worry me immensely if you were expecting the Cavs to be just fine as a threat to win the whole title again. Bradford, we all thought a game like this would come, but I think a lot of us thought it would come on the defensive end, right? Like they could score with anybody, but their defense has been what's been what's been gashed left and right, especially on the perimeter. They only scored 80 points. You know, they held Indiana for as good as Oladipo played to under 100 points, and at home they put up that point total. LeBron had a good, too great game, but not an all-worldly game, even with the triple-double. Mm-hmm. You have guys like Jeff Green that went for zero. I mean, your three-point shooting was non-existent. I just think that's the, 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 the side that was eye-opening, was that a Cavs team at home could be that inefficient on offense. It's a valid observation, and by my count as well, you're talking about the uh, second-worst offensive performance of the season as far as from an efficiency standpoint, not being able to shoot the basketball, just not moving with any fluidity to be quite frank as well, you throw into the equation then moving forward that perhaps George Hill is at less than 100% at the point guard position. And what I'm looking at, though, Mitch, more than anything else, what I'm very much anticipating is for LeBron James, and you mentioned the triple-double, obviously, and we understand the playoff track record, especially in the first round. He's going to get his. He's going to look, I think, much more active tomorrow evening talking about Wednesday night in Cleveland and that's really out of necessity because if you think about the manner in which Cleveland is currently operating really all season long yes getting buckets getting buckets from different sources but looking to 23 I think and that's why it was so curious to me that the Cavs came out in game number one and LeBron did not even attempt a shot from the field yes I know he's the supreme facilitator didn't even fully immerse himself in the offensive flow didn't take charge didn't attempt a shot until basically two minutes remained in the first quarter, I'm sorry, can't do it. Can't set that sort of tempo or lack thereof with this Cavs collection. Not when you're talking about a team that doesn't have that offensive continuity, that barely played together for 20 or so games. When you're relying on somebody like Jeff Green in the front court to give you the defensive minutes, but you know that some of the hollow, empty shooting evenings are going to be there. Kyle Korver, we haven't even talked about him, clearly compromised from a health standpoint, Mm -hmm. played four minutes, Due to that foot condition, I'm not sure if he even factors in to this series very much. So that's why I truly am adamant about, and it has to be, it has to happen tomorrow night, out of necessity. James has to be able to set that tenor 
on the offensive end and be more of that me guy from the opening tip. Otherwise, if the shots aren't falling, if you continue to see them just jacked up with a lot of, uh, without a lot of movement, without a lot of ball movement coming off of screens, if Rodney Hood isn't there, you're going to potentially see really a repeat of the performance in game number one. You go down 0-2, moving into Indiana as well, where you know it's going to be the utmost raucous crowd. Oh, yeah. Boy, we could really have something here for a first-round series. Well, and I think you're right because it's also a blueprint for other teams now. If LeBron is that facilitator in the first quarter, these other teams are going to come out and just smash him in the mouth. And, and you know how hard it is, even with LeBron, no matter what team you're on, the Warriors, the Rockets, you name it. If you fall behind 15, 20 points early in the game, it's a tough hole. It's a tough mountain to climb. And I think that's what happened in that Cavs game. They got to start better. The roster is what it is. You're not going to add anybody in the playoffs, but there are ways, there are little nuances. I'm really interested to see if Ty Lue has it in him because he's been criticized somewhat fairly most of the time for not being able to adjust. We'll see if he has it in him. And, and on the bigger scale, Bradford, I think this if one if what we've been able to see is that the Cavs, at least right now, barring a, a, an about face, aren't in that Houston-Golden State realm. The Eastern Conference being exciting, being you know, maybe a little unpredictable, has that wide open feel, but a lot of the other contenders have their errors, have their injuries, have problems. And if you had a healthy team clicking in all cylinders, I'd say the Cavs had a lot to be worried about, but since I don't really see that, I think they have somewhat a little bit to be worried about, but not uh, an, it's not an overbearing problem, if that makes sense. I think the rest of the East is vulnerable in their own ways, too. No, right. And as far as that Pantheon, Mitch, is concerned, out west, you have Houston, you have Golden State, rightfully so. And then there is the next best echelon, whether you're talking about a Cleveland, whether you're talking about a Toronto, until, fairly, until proven otherwise, then perhaps you're really creeping into the conversation, you ingratiate yourself into the conversation. But until proven otherwise, you have the two Titans out west, and then everything else is going to be so nip and tuck, I feel. And that's why I actually love examining the overall Eastern Conference picture because it is so enticing. It is so much more wide open from start to finish, I think, this this season. Well, they are the that was the 4-5 matchup, Game 2 being to being on Wednesday night in that series. The 1-8 was the Raptors, is the Raptors, and the Washington Wizards with the Raptors winning that one. It is a miracle. They won a Game 1 at home. The Raptors are up 1-0 on the 8-seed Washington Wizards. I think you have a lot of these series that are traps for the top teams because the bottom of the conference, 5 through about, or 6 through about 8 Bradford, is teams that underachieved, that expected to be higher and were lower in the playoffs. I think that fits the Wizards to a T. The Raptors yep. had an up-and-down game one, but when it mattered most, they were getting some great outside shooting. C.J. Miles was knocking down shots, and... Say what you want about their inability to perform in big moments, but as opposed to previous years, I really like this edition of the Raptors' depth. I think that's what's going to—that's going to be what gets them as far as they go this year. They really are a team that could go, go eight, nine, ten deep. And we saw that throughout the regular campaign, and we know by this point just how adept Dwayne Casey is at being able to assemble a roster, at being able to figure out true units and true rotations and Toronto what I particularly adore Mitch down the stretch in the regular season not really deviating from the master plan of somewhat finessing massaging the minutes of DeRozan of Kyle Lowry some of those guys because you trusted so much if you were Dwayne Casey in that second unit in the overall components making up your roster and a lot of those same guys 
they were absolutely right there rising to the forefront, propelling the Raptors to victory in game number one. You hit the nail on the head with respect to the shooting. Now, is this team going to go 53% from deep again, especially, what, 69 70%? <laughs> In the second half, I don't believe so. But let me tell you, if you've got C.J. Miles coming off the bench, knocking down a quartet of traits, if you have everybody else then joining the fray alongside DeRozan and Kyle Lowry too, there's perhaps a little bugaboo, I think, with respect to maybe the health of Fred Van Vliet. If he's not at full health, if he even misses game number two, he was such a valuable element, I believe, of that team taking over some of the ball handling duties in the second half of the season. You really saw that confidence from Casey to Van Vliet grow for that matter too. Wichita State shout out for that matter. But I love what Toronto is able to do from a balanced standpoint, and that's where the primary difference is. Maybe the shooting, the torrid shooting doesn't continue, but that balance that bench component will because i look at the fact that toronto outscored washington in that department 42 to 21 in game number one and i would expect that very same difference or something very comparable to replicate itself moving forward in this series you've got beal you've got wall on the other side and obviously in the two games that washington dropped against toronto during the regular season the wizards did not have john wall at their disposal still the backcourt can only do so many different things when Toronto is coming at you from any number of directions. And the defensive intensity this year, it has gone up. It has been ratcheted up a notch. And that's why Toronto, this year more than in any previous installment, I think, is custom-built, custom-made for a deeper run into the playoffs, provided that the juggernaut doesn't resurface in number two. You know the team to which I'm referring. <laughs> yeah. Well, let me just say this. I know the Raptors have their their issues with overcoming ghosts of playoff failures in the past. Luckily for them, they drew probably the mentally weakest team to make the playoffs in the Washington Wizards because the talent is clearly there, but we saw this team in the regular season just argue, take themselves out of games, and really just not seem to have that desire. I, I would worry about the fact that they have all that talent on the other side, but the Raptors have guys that I trust more in DeRozan, in Lowry. I don't think this series goes as long as some people think, given that Everything about the Wizards this year screams front-runner to me. If the Raptors win game two at home, you could see this Washington team check out very, very quickly. It's an interesting comment with respect to the attitude, the -the across-the-board temperament, because you've almost, at least to me, Mitch, over the last season plus, you've sort of gleaned from this organization, Washington, that is, a misguided sense of entitlement, if you will. What has truly been gained, what has truly been garnered, in the postseason, and the frank, honest, candid answer to that is nothing. And I wonder, without being obviously on the inside as far as the two team leaders that you have, the two guys with the elite skill sets in Wall and Bradley Beal, too, at what point, if you do bow out extremely early in this series, and yes, it is it is a mismatch. You believe in Toronto, obviously, and Toronto is better on paper and better on the floor as far as execution goes, but the recipe there, the formula, what exactly is it with Scott Brooks at the helm How long do you continue to go to that well? I think if it's a sweep, if it's a very quick series, maybe in five games, I think it's something you definitely have to examine in the grand scheme of things as far as how your team is constructed. What are you doing to get better? What are you doing to really change? I don't know if it's a culture thing, but something is just amiss, it seems, there in the nation's capital. 
Irrational confidence is one thing that can help you, but, uh, yeah, I don't know what this team's accomplished. Uh, they said they had the best backcourt, B.O. and Wall did, in the NBA in uh, October, which is it's pretty ridiculous, but it is what it is. Um, we'll move on now to another series, still talking with Bradford Bruns and the Money Mitch effect. Boston-Milwaukee had quite the game one, Bradford, and the Celtics pulled it out in overtime. Close game there, late drama and regulation. But the Celtics yep. win game one, and they we know they're depleted. A lot of guys that aren't there, three of the main factors that we were talking about before the season started, Kyrie Irving, Gordon Hayward, and Marcus Smart not playing in that game, but Celtics find a way to win with Coach Brad Stevens at the helm. Do you expect this series to be a lot like that game one was, a ridiculous back and forth at times, uncoordinated, just mess of an exciting game, or will water rise to its level like it did in the regular season the Celtics handle business with the superior superiorly run organization yeah is it possible for let's say the duration of the series to be as simultaneously exhilarating and disjointed as a fair amount of game number one was hey that was you you said it the Celts you'll appreciate this are basically more banged up than Stallone at any point in the Rocky franchise at this juncture and yet I'm a believer I truly am. I'm a believer for a couple of primary reasons, all right? We understand what Brad Stevens brings to the table as far as taking players that perhaps are not considered or categorized as the elite blue-chip individuals and then fitting them within the confines, within the construct of a team concept. And Boston is still able to do that better than any other team, in my opinion, in my estimation, perhaps Toronto notwithstanding, in the whole Eastern Conference. Kyrie Irving goes down. He's compromised for the rest of the season. Gordon Hayward goes out in the opening game. And yet this team, perhaps it doesn't look aesthetically pleasing all the time. It's going to be ugly. They're certainly going to have to figure out ways, different ways to be able to prevail in these ball games. But I think that this particular Boston team, and I will say that I wholeheartedly, I'm endorsing, I'm backing the Celtics to actually go no more than five games in terms of actually being able to upend the Bucks in round number one. This team ultimately, though, as far as projecting, maybe going down the line, will this team run into Philadelphia? We don't really know. Miami, let's just see. It's going to venture as far as Al Horford is truly able to take it. Now, Horford is finally trying. Can he actually, Mitch, transcend that label, that high IQ, the good motor label guy, and become legitimately great? This is his stage. We talked about this with respect to the Florida product last season. We talked about can he reach, is he capable of attaining another level of excellence? Game number one would seem to indicate that perhaps he's ready to finally take that onus on, take it on his shoulders, and do something with it. Now, on the flip side, on the opposite end of the spectrum, I don't expect the Greek freak, I don't anticipate Giannis to have as many issues on the defensive end in game two and moving forward. He understands. He's far too athletic. He's just too great, period, to be committing relatively cheap fouls, to not be moving his feet, to get into any trouble in that department, and quite frankly, to not be able to stay in front of Al Horford. However, when you've got Boston, when you have the role players having gained that much more confidence during the course of the year, when you have Terry Rozier basically playing out of his mind on both ends, not a great shooter, but still no. making those contributions. When you've got Jalen Brown, when you have St. Louis's own Jason Tatum, who is playing right now with wisdom beyond his years, when you've got all these guys buying into the team concept and then maybe later in this round or thereafter somebody such as a Marcus Smart returning to the equation, I just think that the guidance there 
in Beantown from Brad Stevens. He knows how to utilize all of these parts, and they're so selfless with the basketball, particularly now when it matters most. For Milwaukee, I just don't know where the support is going to come from. Is it Eric Bledsoe? Is it a guy who's shooting 33%, who's turning the ball over five or six times? Where else is the help? From where is it going to originate? I expect some tight affairs to come, but each and every time, even on the road, quite frankly, give me Boston, Mitch. Yeah, and well, I do appreciate a good Rocky reference. I didn't want you to forget me mentioning that. But Giannis, notwithstanding, a lot of respect for him. I just I agree with what you said. I don't think they they have the system in place. They don't have the firepower in place to support him. Unfortunately, it looks like Jabari Parker isn't quite back, and, and I don't know what the major knee injury is. He's going to get that explosiveness back. Boston will, no. unfortunately, with Kyrie Irving's injury, that was a nail in the coffin of their championship hopes. I think everybody would pretty much agree to that. But they still have Stevens running the offense. You mentioned Horford. Could this be his time? Tatum's emergence in game one showed me that this could be somebody that has a coming out party in the playoffs. The the opportunities are there. He's got a coach that's going to put him in the best place to succeed. Terry Rozier, mm-hmm. maybe an underrated point guard. I mean, not a not a good top-end starter, but is able to play and, and run the offense that Stevens has. I think the biggest thing is we saw Giannis, Giannis's, um defensive breakdowns. I think that's partly his fault, but partly because Stevens is going to make make you work. He's going to move the ball. He's going to find weaknesses on the defense. So I just think eventually, True. eventually, as this series settles in, the Celtics will set up shop and, and we'll be able to dispatch the of the Bucks fairly quick, five or six games. I'm looking more forward to that next round just because we don't know which team's going to be there and how Boston will match up with them, how Stevens will try to face one of the other two teams. But I did want to spend some good time talking on that because it's 1-1. Bradford, we almost recorded this interview. We're, we're doing this on Tuesday. If we would have done it yesterday on Monday, we would have been all on the Sixers and won 17 straight games, and they won game one in a blowout, and it's their time. The process is here. They're dancing in the streets. But, no, the Miami Heat end the streak. They win it somewhat convincingly. Dwayne Wade has a flash, uh, a flashback, so to speak, no pun intended. And here we are with the Miami Heat stealing home court back. I think the first thing we got to say, Bradford, is – Props to Eric Spolstra. Maybe the maybe one of the best coaches in basketball still for what he was able to do yes, to, the, to the Sixers. You know, my second question is, when's Embiid going to play? But those are the two storylines, I think, that are now driving this new best-of-five series. A curmudgeonly grumpy Embiid at that. Get him back mm-hmm. on the floor, right? But the storyline, your number one headline, of course, has to pertain to, it all has to deal with, Dwayne Wade's revelatory flashback performance, no doubt about it, in the limited minutes, being able to turn back the clock, if only for a stretch, if only for a night in the postseason. That was fun to witness. That was fun to observe. But you just had the the sense that after game number one, the embarrassing second half in particular for the Heat as Philadelphia actually just absolutely ran roughshod over Miami, that a team, an Eric Spolstra team, and a gutsy team, a gritty team in a lot of different capacities with some underrated performers coming off of the bench too, not just talking about a Dwayne Wade, but a team with that sort of makeup would respond and respond accordingly on the road. And that's exactly what we saw occur in game number two. Absolutely everybody feeling Philadelphia, trusting in the process, and deserving of a lot of credit, of course, when you're talking about that organization. That is a sublime narrative. It's been the case for the better part of the NBA season, but at a certain juncture when it comes to playoff basketball, reality is inevitably going to set in. And when you don't have 
Embiid on the floor, and you are relying so heavily on Ben Simmons, as fantastic as he is, and some shooters, let's just say from time to time, it's been unbelievable to witness the continued hot stretches of these guys, but I'm looking at the remainder of this series, and I'm thinking to myself too, Mitch, with the manner in which Miami is capable for stretches of geeing it up, Bellinelli, Redick, etc., what are you going to see in that department in terms of consistent three-point shooting? Is the athleticism probably going to win out? Yes, I will say so. But that front line, what could truly swing the tide, what could truly swing the tide and maybe affect the overall tenor of this matchup as well when you're talking about Whiteside and company down low, some of the bangers for Miami, some of the bangers for Miami and the adjustments in turn that we have seen Eric Spolstra be able to make over the course of this season, over the course of his tenure in South Beach, quite frankly. I think he has been criminally underrated for the better part of his time as the bench boss for the Heat. I think the Heat have what it takes, the experience, the overall makeup of that roster, the Constitution, to make it a series. Am I still favoring Philadelphia? Absolutely. But it's not just going to be all sunshine and lollipops en route to making it into the second round of the playoffs. I think Miami is just sterling enough, especially on the defensive end of the floor, to be able to challenge some of the young guns from Philadelphia. And I can't wait to see what Game 3 entails. Well, let's not forget Game 1. Whiteside was awful. Dragic Dragic was not much better. They played a little bit better. Dragic had a good game, but Whiteside's still kind of getting there. But that was without their best horses firing on all cylinders. I think defensively as a tactician and slowing the game down, I think Spolster is as good as anybody as a coach in the NBA. Without Embiid, what Embiid does, in my opinion, Bradford, is he gives you that clear-cut bucket option. Like, if we need a bucket, we're going to go down to Embiid. Simmons is great. He's phenomenal. He's the sophomore rookie of the year, as I like to call him. But he's not going to give you uh, uh, that shooting ability because he's not somebody that can shoot it from the outside. So there is something lost no. in them. You're relying on shooters. You're relying on Bellinelli, Reddick, Covington, who needs to play better as well, TJ McConnell. These are not guys that you think will show up and show out for, with the game on the line. So I think MB does, does need to play. He wants to be out there. It'd be interesting to see how that series develops there. But, look, Philly was everybody's trendy pick in the East, and I looked at this series as a tough matchup because the Heat were a team that last year went on that crazy run to the end of the season, just missed the playoffs, we expected them to be good this year. They they struggled out of the gate. They were written off. Dwayne Wade comes back, gets himself in shape, and then here we are. So yep. the East is wide open in a sense, but it's wide open because I think a lot of the level is you have the bottom teams that have raised their game and some of the top teams that have came down. It's just created this ultra-middle class that it's, got, it's fun to watch. I don't know if they can compete with Houston or Golden State in the final series, but it's definitely fun to watch. Right, and to piggyback off of your last point as well, Mitch, with respect to Embiid and what he creates from the standpoint of spacing the floor as well, drawing out those additional Miami defenders, making them work that much harder as far as swinging from baseline to baseline as well, that is something for which you have to account and provided that he's able to return later on in this series and basically resemble the version that we saw of him throughout this entire season. That's something that you monitor and that definitely swings into the favor of Philadelphia even further. But at the moment, Miami's job is made that much easier along the interior because you're not having to venture out as much to the perimeter to account for the big. Yeah, um, it's a fascinating matchup and uh, one that we're going to be Paying close attention to as this series progresses, Bradford, Bruns, Money, Mitch Effect. I do want to touch on some of these Western Conference matchups, but 
in a little different way. And and I mean that because we can talk about Golden State San Antonio, but what's happening is what we expected to happen and it would be a shock if it if it changed. So I'll ask it a different way. I'll frame the question differently. When will Golden State be tested? Will it be not until the final the Western Conference Finals? And do you think Curry plays in that second round series that we're looking at? Because the way it's going, do you need to rush him back? No, you watch the first two games of that series and you're left with the consensus or the thought process, well, here we go again right now. Cleveland may have thought it could flip the proverbial switch in the Eastern Conference. Well, the Dubs actually did with the manner in which they absolutely deconstructed and annihilated the Spurs. And I don't think in many different respects, Mitch, and you look, of course, at the, the final stat line for Kevin Durant, you're talking about, you're projecting, when is Steph Curry going to be able to come back? Is he going to be there for the later portion of the second round, conference finals? When is he coming back? We don't give enough credit to Klay Thompson, and especially what, what he did throughout this season. All right, he has a sensational all-around year. He gets sidetracked temporarily by that broken right thumb in March and then proceeds to enter the playoffs, start the first two games by going 23 of 33 from the floor and providing that sublime defense as well. We're not going to truly dig into Golden State versus San Antonio, of course, but when I'm trying to find maybe a chink in the armor of the Warriors before they invariably get to the conference finals, I'll say it, yes, invariably get to the conference finals. I'm just not sure that any of the would-be forthcoming opponents are still able to match what Golden State offers from that pace standpoint, from just the variety, the surplus of different weapons, especially if Klay Thompson is gunning it to the yeah. same degree from deep. We know about Durant. We know about both ends of the floor. Draymond Green struggling somewhat with the shot right now, but if Klay Thompson is filling that void in a manner of speaking, that really creates another set of conundrums for any adversary for Golden State. And I'll tell you what as well, something that's interesting, yes, it's easy in immediate retrospect to look at that decision by Steve Kerr to keep JaVale McGee in the starting lineup, oh, and to have 10 and 7. But if that's somebody in the middle right now in whom you can trust for, hey, just minutes at a time, that shot-altering ability too, triggering some, some fast breaks going the other way in transition, that's something as well. So for me, the long way of saying it, the extremely convoluted way of saying it, no, I don't think this team does get challenged until it runs into Houston. For me, it's a poor mountain. You know, Iguodala is playing a lot better too, Livingston. I mean, these are guys yes. that have been there before, and, and they're the guys that hadn't played well in the regular season. That's That switch has been flipped. Uh, it's a sight to see for Golden State fans. Unfortunately for the Spurs, without Kawhi Leonard, it's a sad situation there. Just a lot going on. They haven't really posed much of a threat. You look at Portland and uh, New Orleans, the Pelicans, with the Pelicans winning game one on the road. Maybe one of those teams could win a game or two, but that's about all you see. I, I will say this. I'm, I've am i been impressed with the Pelicans maybe more than anybody this year. They've been one of the most fun stories in my mind in the NBA because there's a team. I just love it when a team rallies together when they're not expected to go on after an injury or after a trade or something yeah. of that nature. Cousins goes down. Davis just says, screw it. We're going as far as I'm going to take you guys. Get in the car. Let's go. And that was more evident in game one where he played well defensively, offensively. What a threat. And, and Drew Holiday having a comeback as well with some great defense to, to boot. So the Pelicans, I mean, that's a team that they, they weren't even supposed to be here. They, you could say playing with house money, but I, I would be scared mm-hmm. to play them uh, if I was Portland. And maybe even Golden State for a game or two could, uh, could get taken. It's a scary team. It's a scary squad, no doubt, Mitch. And you hate to play the what-if game, but what may have been 
if you were talking about New Orleans with a full deck of cards, if you were talking about Boogie Cousins alongside Anthony Davis in a playoff setting, you really do consider. I mean, thank you. Thank you. You do wonder, as it stands right now, though, with all due respect to New Orleans, and I definitely, I like the Pelicans as one of the few inferior seeds. I don't, I think that that matchup on the surface is so even, so comparable anyway. In terms of Portland versus New Orleans, I don't really think that the numbers matter too much or are of that much significance, but I, I think that the Pelicans have, yes, that style of play, have that ability, especially with Davis and his, his postseason maybe coming out party here if he's able to get into round two and perhaps even even farther. But I love watching that team play go about its business, and, and you do wonder moving forward, absolutely, if you can keep that, that duo in the paint intact. It's fun to think about the Western Conference maybe even a few years from now and how that could evolve, how the balance of power could maybe evolve down there. As we look at the top of the Western Conference and that side, Bradford with OKC and Utah, which I think might be the best series of them all, that could be a full seven game, uh, exciting matchup. They're looking to play that. The winner will probably get Houston. But what's fascinating to me is you have so many, you have so many different storylines, different matchups: Donovan Mitchell, Russell Westbrook, and and now Paul George, who's quietly reminding everybody that he's one of the best forces in the playoffs because what he did in game. Now one, wait a second. Was it was incredible? It was probably the best performance of anyone in the first game. But go ahead. What were you going to say? Are you suggesting, Mister Michaels, that that maybe we don't have a conclusion to the alpha male discussion in OKC? Are you <laughs> oh, no. saying that? Oh no! Uh, Please don't. I don't want to. Please say that. don't. Let's just don't. say that as a scorer, as a scorer, it, he's about okay. as pure as it gets in the entire NBA. And how pure? How great was his second half? Now he makes it onto the all-star roster, despite not having a standard, especially from a shooting perspective, Paul George season, but perhaps lost in all of the fervor once again over the grand Russell Westbrook triple-double for the season hunt. Paul George was out of his mind throughout the entire second half, and there you saw him step up in game one, no doubt. I just think this series is going to go down to the wire, and... Um... Unfortunately, it's going to tire one of these teams out. Utah won a seven-game series in the first round last year as the five seed against the Clippers. I think this one will go much the same. I think Houston, Minnesota, Bradford, uh, it'll be fun like game one was. It'll be you know interesting, maybe some tight games in the fourth. But you're going to have sure. a hard time convincing me that the Timberwolves can get the Rockets now four out of six times with what Houston can do offensively. They didn't even play that well in game one. A lot of their mm-hmm. top guys played poor, and they still were able to gut it out. A lot of NBA players have benefited. Last thing I'll say, a lot of NBA players have benefited by the league's reluctance to call pretty much any sort of travel. But maybe nobody benefits more than James Harden. <laughs> Understatement not a, not of a total shot, the but, month, you know. the year, the playoffs. <laughs> yeah, I, I, yeah, I, I like can't him, fault you one bit for that. I'm a fan. I, I think it's remarkable what he's able to do. But I had to say that, you know, because it's I don't I don't know that, that uh, if you pull that move at the Chaffetz Center in St. Louis, I think. You get called for traveling, and your coach takes you out of the game, but that's just me. Yeah, after hours, some rec league action. I've tried it. I've attempted as much, and it doesn't work the same way. Do you think the Rockets are going to breeze through this series? Do the Timberwolves? I know they got a lot of talent. Butler's back. Um, can they cat? I mean, another guy, Carl Anthony Towns, that could absolutely dominate in the post. Do you think they win a couple games this series, or is it smooth sailing for Clutch City? Multiple contests, no. I'd love to give Minnesota a game 
but I just can't. I can't wade into that territory. I'd love to, and I do think that Minnesota certainly for stretches, for quarters, maybe even for halves, will certainly give Houston all it can handle. But this simply isn't the year. This isn't the time just yet for Minnesota as an entire collection of talent. Still, you need to see more in the way of coalescing, being able to build that continuity. The team is so, so young, Mitch, and yet still so, so raw in spite of the mature game of a Carl Anthony Towns, of Jimmy Butler. You absolutely love what you have seen getting back to the playoffs for the first time since the first Kevin Garnett tenure in the Twin Cities. But even with Thibodeau at the helm, even with the steady hand he provides, he can only do so much, in my opinion, too, with some of the inherent defensive limitations that the Timberwolves do possess. Let's make no mistake about it. And when you throw that up against a Houston team, that is simply as sublime as it gets with respect to spacing the floor, overall scoring, so many different trigger options that you have. It's not a great matchup for this team. It's not a great matchup for any team, let alone a team that does have some deficiencies on that side, such as Minnesota. So as exciting as this team can be, as exciting as this team is going to be, venturing into the future, I can't go that far. I can't even give the T-Wolves a game in this setting. So for Houston, the only question to me is, yes, exactly how quickly it can shut it down, get some more rest prior to round number two because the Rockets are rolling too. And again, I don't see that locomotive losing any steam before the conference finals. I know it sounds, and I'll just say it ad nauseum, but for me, that's the, that's the gut feeling. That's what we have seen play out over the course of the year. Yeah, it feels like we're the inevitable Rockets and Warriors in the conference final. But hey, if and when we do get there, that should be a pretty good series. We'll have Steph back for the Warriors. They'll, the Rockets will be probably well-rested. So that remains to be seen. But two Titanic heavyweights there going to be showing down. Well, Bradford Bruns, last thing, this was great again. I know we're going to have some more chats before the NBA champion is crowned. Last thing, and I'm mm-hmm. not going to ask you to make your pick, but if I asked you right now, Who's the favorite? This could always change, but who's the favorite in the East right now? Is it still the Cavs, or at the moment has that changed? My favorite in the East, because we're talking about late April. Mm-hmm. We're talking about the first round. We're talking about not even half of the series having reached the halfway point. Despite everything that I said, it does remain Cleveland. Now, bear in mind, full transparency here. Yes, you're talking to the guy who predicted in round number three, the Cavs would somehow figure out a way to be able to buck the Warriors last summer. I will readily admit as much. I will certainly say that. I will confess, I will fess up to my heirs, my heirs of the past, the heirs of my ways. And yet, I suppose I'm a glutton for punishment. But in all honesty, I truly do expect a turnaround specifically, Mitch, the common, the recurring thread, the theme that we've talked about throughout the course of this conversation from an offensive standpoint. When LeBron is right, I don't care about the fact that he played all 82 games in the regular season for the first time ever. I don't care about the fact that he didn't have as much lift, that he didn't have quite the same jumper in game number one. It's going to be there in game two and moving forward. I think that Kevin Love, you are going to see him take on that additional sense of ownership. You're going to see him be able to get outside and be that preeminent perimeter threat. And if J.R. Smith, quite honestly, for as as combustible as J.R. Smith can be, the one silver lining that you can draw from game number one for Cleveland is that J.R. Smith played as well as he had, honestly, in months. I still need to see it from the Toronto Raptors. Sorry to the Boston Celtics as far as, again, the injuries there too much to be able to overcome from a talent standpoint. Toronto, I fully expect 
just motoring ahead just a little bit to be able to give Cleveland as much as it can handle in a would-be rounds number two matchup. But until you knock off the king, until you remove that crown and you deny him of a finals appearance, I cannot do it. I cannot do it with him at full health, at least as much as possible, because I expect better communication on the offensive end. And defensively speaking, can Toronto crack through? Can somebody other than DeRozan and Lowry and perhaps Serge Ibaka provide that secondary scoring? Yes, in a home setting, no less to be able to finally knock off Cleveland. You have to show me, Mitch, hailing from the show me state. Yeah, <laughs> that's great. We brought it all back to St. Louis at, at all times. Uh, I think you're right. I, I think right now you're right. But game two, I want to I want to see what happens there. If the Cavs win, I mean, I think they have to win, obviously, but convincing win would do good to, to settle some things down. If they, if they win a close one that could go either way, I think people are going to rightfully still have their doubts. But it's early. Just wanted to float that idea out there. We might have a whole other conversation, good or bad, in a couple weeks. So we'll see. But So early. It's the foremost marathon. Get, oh, people can oh, throw baseball know. in the Stanley Cup fi- finals <laughs> all they want out there, but the fact that you have one game every four nights cements it for the NBA. Oh, it'll be hot in, in St. Louis. It'll be hot in the Midwest by the time. That's how long this playoffs is. It won't be snowing. Well, I'm not sure about that. Yeah, maybe in Minnesota or something, but we'll see. All right, Bradford Bruns, this was fun. Thanks for uh, coming on the show. As always, appreciate it, and we'll have to do this again before the NBA Finals. Thanks again for coming on the Money Mitch Effect. Buddy, it's my pleasure. The one thing on which Jason Tatum has to work, I'm going to give him some few tips on the emo pitching front, so I'm off to do that, and I will catch up with you later. All right, give him my best. Uh, I'm still upset he picked Duke, but it is what it is. But (laughs) thanks again uh, for coming on the show. You got it, buddy. All right, huge thanks to Brad for Bruns for coming on today's show and talking NBA. We'll be talking to him before the NBA champion is crowned, that is for sure. Again, props to the Pelicans who go back to New Orleans now up 2-0 after Drew Holiday's 33-point effort. Celtics and Raptors also taking control of their respective series going up 2-0. Now it's time to talk hockey with Tyler Tesson. We talk NHL Stanley Cup playoffs. Capitals did win last night. They're back to 2-1. But we break down all the series, who looks like the real contenders in each conference. We also talk about the draft in the NFL, that is. We got a draft next week. Tyler's a big football guy as well. And Des Bryant getting cut by the Cowboys, what it means for both the organization and the player. Here it is now, Tyler Tesson on the Money Mitch Effect. All right, Money Mitch Effect, we're in the middle of playoff season. Hockey playoffs are heating up already. Got my good buddy Tyler Tesson in to break down some of these games. Tyler, thanks again for rejoining the show. No problem. Thanks for having me. There's uh, there's really only two places to start uh, with how these playoffs have gone, just in terms of the series themselves from a shocking development. But we got to start out east with... Uh, it's happening again with the Washington Capitals. They lose two games in overtime at home to the Columbus Blue Jackets. And now they go on the road to Columbus. Division champs yet again, but here they are, seemingly about to flame out in the playoffs. And oddly enough, though, Tyler, they didn't really come into the playoffs with a lot of fanfare and excitement. It's almost like we were expecting it at this point. Would you agree with that? 
Yeah, it's just become the norm for them these days, and especially with more than light of playing Pittsburgh next round, too. I think everyone just figured it wasn't their year again. But it's just one of those things. It's just to be expected with them. The Pittsburgh thing is clearly a mental edge and, and a lot of talent in certain realms. These last two games could have gone their ways and their way in typical Capitals luck. It did not. Last game, I don't know if you saw game two as we record this on a Monday night, but Bobrovsky stole that game for Columbus. I mean, 54 saves. Ovechkin had two goals. The team scores four, but a little five-minute lapse where Grubauer, who had taken the goal from Holpe, who had been terrible, gives up three goals in about four minutes. That was ultimately the difference. It's just, for whatever reason, when it comes April, this team can't put together a full 60-minute game. Yeah, I... I'm not counting them out yet. You lose two games in overtime. It could be one bounce here or there, and it's yours. So, I don't know. If, obviously, if they lose the next one, they're done. But I think if they can steal game three, they might. They're still in it. But, yeah, we'll see. Especially when you have a goalie make 54 saves on you. That's, that's just playoff hockey. You get a hot goalie, they can screw everything up. Yeah, I mean, and it's funny, too, not to dig in on another team, but, you know, the Flyers have always had this goaltending problem. It's nice to know that the one goalie that they didn't give a chance to, Bobrovsky, has found his groove somewhere else. I mean, because what he's been able to do for Columbus is essentially give them a backbone, and the way the Blue Jackets play, I've never been the biggest John Tortorella fan in terms of an X's and O's guy. He's more of a motivating coach. But this is a, a deep team that could skate with the Capitals, and while the Capitals have all those skills advantage, I've noticed defensively Columbus having an edge in this series with Berlinski, with Seth Jones, and maybe that's something that I think I didn't expect for the Blue Jackets to make during this playoff run. Yeah, and Torelli, he's kind of like his style kind of fits the playoff brand of hockey, too. You know, it's physical, more defensive style. So I, I think. He just builds his team to be successful in the playoffs. Yeah, I have to also thank, as a Blue Jackets supporter, I really have to thank the Chicago Blackhawks for just dropping off an all-star <laughs> on their front door. Yeah. Well, Panarin, the, yeah. the goal the goal to win game, uh, game one in overtime was incredible. It was just a phenomenal display of skill in OT. But, you know, that Saad trade, I, I still remember it like it was yesterday. Everybody saying, well, Saad has had success in Chicago. He's... He's a better fit for the team. And, and my favorite personal one was, you know, Panera not being a big game playoff player. If they're judging last year's series against Nashville, everybody stunk in that series. And if I remember correctly, Tyler, the year that the Blues beat Chicago in that epic seven-game first-round series, I think Panera led the, led the Blackhawks in scoring there. So I don't think that narrative really yeah. fits. Yeah, I don't think the Blackhawks fans are too happy with that trade right now. <laughs> no, you can't be. I mean... It's. Does it surprise you to know also that Panarin ha, has now the record for most points in a single season for the Blue Jackets, more than any Rick Nash season? <laughs> it's crazy that they made that trade. He's just so young, and I mean, I get the salary cap issues when you got Tate and Kane. You got to keep locked up, but man, to let somebody go like that for pretty much nothing, you know, a guy who's on the end of his career. Yeah, it's, it's crazy. Yeah, it was an interesting deal. But I do like what Columbus is doing. They're not out of the woods. We know the Capitals can bounce back. But, man, not looking good for them. And, and again, it's going to be fitting that we're going to probably, the media is probably going to pin this on Ovechkin. You know, he had two goals last night. <laughs> he, was a good, he had a good game in game one. But they're not going to they're, they're give him the benefit of the doubt, unfortunately. 
Yeah, I mean, if you're Washington and you lose first round, I don't know what you do because they've tried a bunch of different things. They've tried coaching changes, revamping the roster. It's like you know they're going to get pressure that Ovechkin's the problem, but I just I don't see any way you can pin it on that guy. There's not much more they can do. They're cap strapped. They've given long term deals to a lot of their top players. I uh, they might have to ride this out, unfortunately, which isn't going to bode well for them. Uh, Tyler, before we go to my favorite my favorite storyline in the Western Conference, it is odd to say though both the Blackhawks and the Blues missing the playoffs. It's kind of kind of feels weird, doesn't it? It is. The Blues is unbelievable to lose that last game against the Avalanche, oh. but I don't know. I think it maybe it was it could be a good thing in the long run. They might have to finally make some big changes and not just do a couple little moves in the off season and really try and get the team back together. Yeah, I noticed a lot of people, the blue season was on. I mean, the Blackhawks just didn't have it this year with some injuries. They were never yeah. really a threat down the stretch. But that blue season was so up and down. I mean, they make their run after trading Stasty away, which a lot of yeah. they traded Shattenkirk away a year ago. They just decided to rally in that locker room. But, you know, they make all that run. They they get back into position, and then they fold down the stretch. Chicago beats them, and then the Avalanche the last game of the year. So I, I they weren't a playoff team. They had their ups and downs, but I think ultimately that was who they were, just a team just on the tail end. It's just The thing that makes it doesn't hurt as bad is that it's just one of those years where it's like even if they got in, you know, we'd be lucky to win one game versus Nashville, and that's it. Like <laughs> you knew there was – like it's one thing if you think you got a really – a great chance to go deep like your goal against hot or something but everyone just knew that wasn't the case with this team no and and we're kind of seeing it with colorado where in that series they're not looking too hot early it just just outmatched there but i think the storyline in the west right now is what the golden knights are doing to the kings tyler in the west coast series they're up three games to love and one of them went to overtime another was one goal uh a one nothing win and the game last night was three one where the knights scored or three two where the knights scored three unanswered goals in the third period when they were down one nothing. But I mean they look, we've been writing them off. I've been the most guilty of it. I thought they'd meet their maker in the playoffs and it hasn't happened yet. This is from what I've seen, getting to see them night in, night out here in the playoffs, just a well balanced team with a great goaltender in Marc Andre Fleury. Yeah. I mean that's the key is they're they're just they're just stacked up and down. I mean they don't have huge name superstars they have some bigger name players but they just have a bunch of guys who can score 20 goals and then when you get a solid proven goalie and flurry i mean they've got what it takes to win and then they've probably got the best atmosphere in the nhl right now at their rink it's incredible to watch those games yeah they the fans have bought in um where when you're in vegas it's not that hard to buy into some sort of entertainment <laughs> but no i i still don't understand how bill carlson William Carlson got over 40 goals this year. He was on the Blue Jackets fourth line last year. Um, he's the he's the exception to their to their system. James Neal is still producing defensively. They're strong, but they have grit that I didn't think they'd have. I, I always thought that this was a more of a front running team, and I got to admit my air there. I mean, they started their home record out so hot, faded down the stretch. You thought maybe teams figured out how to play them, how to play in that atmosphere, but. It was the Kings that were wilting late, and I know Doughty got suspended for what I would call a questionable suspension on that hit, but that's not the main reason that they're not scoring goals. I mean, three goals total in that series is just not going to cut it. No, not at all. But I, yeah, I mean, it's just 
Vegas is just a, I think they're a dark horse to win it. It's just, they're just so balanced and they're just shutting the Kings down defensively. The Kings just can't get anything going. And then anytime they do get a chance, Flurry's there. I'm just really curious to see how they keep going because I think they're going to be kind of discounted every round and they're just going to have to prove everyone wrong. Yeah, I'm not going to go that far, not to sound like I keep bashing on the Knights, but I just trust those two (laughs) Central Division teams a little more, the two teams that we think should go. They absolutely, I mean, San Jose's look good, and I'm choking again, what else is new? But San Jose with Evander Kane looks like they're a solid team and they could definitely have a heck of a series with the Knights. But the Knights could win that. I just don't. You're going to have a tough time convincing me, and I said this before the playoffs started, that any one of these Pacific teams, which is by far the worst division in hockey, is going to get through one of the central teams, barring an injury or, or something nuts happening. Yeah, I mean, Nashville and Winnipeg, are just, you know, they're at a whole nother level. But I don't know. I think Vegas might surprise some people. I, don't, I think they might give them a run for their money, though. Be insane first year if they can make this deep run. Tyler Tesson, Money Mitch effects. I do want to talk about that central division. It's just very fascinating to me. You have Nashville, who has had some adversity early, but tends to pull away and, and, and set their set their best foot forward up two zero against Colorado. The Jets are up two one against Minnesota. They dominated the first two games of that series. Minnesota came back, starting with that series. That team, the Jets, Tyler. I don't really put much bad stock into a, a one loss in a game three type situation, especially in an atmosphere like Minnesota. You can always seemingly count on one game, usually at home where the team comes out on fire, knowing they're in desperation mode. And it's a little bit of a gong show, but that game, notwithstanding, there's a lot to like about this jets team more specifically, how many different ways they can score. They got size. They have finesse and they have one of the best snipers that I've seen at 19 year old Patrick line. Yeah, and they're they're another one of those teams who are just built for the playoffs too. They're a big team, they're physical. Yeah, and then when you have Line A, kind of, uh, I wouldn't say he's an Ovechkin yet, but he could be there soon enough. Who can just flat out snipe? They, you know, they're going to be a tough team to play against just because they're so physical and just make you pay, especially if you go in a deep series with them. I mean, you look behind them, like you look at Buffalo, Tyler Myers, like some of their tall guys. They are tough to get any real estate on. I think the Wilds set the record for the last 30 years for like fewest shots on goal through two games. They just couldn't break through that wall. They did in game three. It got chippy. We know that these teams are division rivals and they hate each other. I just, I obviously can't can't trust Bruce Boudreau to do anything, much less coach a hockey team. I don't know that, I mean, Ryan Suter not being there is the big thing to me, but I just don't see the offensive weaponry needed to beat a team like the Jets four out of seven times. Yeah, well, and the Myers, you know, injury could yeah. end up being big. If he's out for a while, just, he plays a big role in the team. So that one will be a huge loss for them if he's out for any big amount of time. Have you noticed anything odd with how the league and the Department of Player Safety is deciding who to suspend in these playoffs? Because he gets punched in the <laughs> I back. I think they're just the drawing knee. names out of a hat. <laughs> he gets a yeah, magic eight ball or something. He gets punched in the back of the knee, no suspension. Doughty got a suspension for uh, that that hit against uh, the Vegas player. There was uh, the three-game suspension by Kadri where I think that was well-deserved. He tried to just decapitate somebody. Yeah, that one was bad. <laughs> I mean, it's just there's some inconsistency, and I think you see it with penalties as well. 
uh, this time of year and, and you have the offside rule to boot, it's not really the best time of year for officials and the league and some of the rules being put under the microscope. Yeah, I was reading something earlier too. Penalties are up like 20%, I think, this year compared to last year in the playoffs. Like it's just it's crazy. And then there's a, I think there have been 38 power play goals so far in the playoffs, which is just crazy for how many games have been played. But then, yeah, but then if you watch like Toronto and Boston, which that series, it's like they don't call any penalties. Yeah. So if you're at a, if you're at a sports bar, if you have a two TV set up in your room or whatever, wherever you're watching the games, and you watch say Columbus, Washington, and or Pittsburgh, Philadelphia next to that game, it's like watching two different sports. Yeah, it really is. I mean, there's just a lack of consistency. But we're going to have to see what happens there. The Eastern Conference, a few series I want to touch on, Tyler. Uh, the Pittsburgh-Philly series. What an odd odd matchup and odd development. I can't remember that yeah. many different beatdowns happening in a row. <laughs> yeah, especially, like, it's one thing to lose, like, by three or four, which you'd consider a blow on hockey. To lose a game 7 nothing, like, it is. Like, I don't even understand how you can lose that badly but then come back and win the next night. It, and then win 5-1 the it, next night. Like, that's the other thing. Yeah. Like, <laughs> just, it, it was, I don't know if the Flyers just didn't really take the Penguins seriously or didn't think the series would really start until later into it, but, you know, they come out. And, and actually, the, the least surprising thing of all this, Tyler, was Game 3 Pittsburgh handling business on the road because we've seen them do yeah. it every year these last couple. And it's just... It's their top guys playing well, and you need that on the road. And you can always count on Crosby, Malk, and Kessel to just show up. And now Derek Broussard's on their third line. I mean, they also didn't have Crystal Tang last year. I, I really think that I didn't pick Pittsburgh just because out of spite to win the Cup. But if you look at the roster, they have every good a chance to do it again. Yeah, absolutely. When they, As long as they have Crosby, Malkin, and Kessel going, you can never count those guys out. It's it's unbelievable. It's especially Philly. I mean, that's a rivalry series too. Those two teams hate each other. Well, so, as, as long they have as these blowouts, yeah. As long as the Flyers, or as long as the Penguins don't get dragged down into just total gong show playing the trash, they should handle business. Like I don't know many people that think the Pens are going to lose a skill matchup to just about anybody. Yeah, I would be shocked if it would take them getting rattled like they did five, six years ago for them to lose to the Flyers. Yeah, I, I think they're going to – that one will go six at the most. I think it'll – they should wrap business up. <laughs> now, do you think – I was going to ask you this last thing. Do you, do, do you think Crosby has the best hand-eye coordination you've ever seen? <laughs> I mean, he scored two more goals yeah. in game one where it's like, Jesus, of any hockey player. Yeah, I'm just not the biggest Crosby fan, but I guess I can give him credit for that. <laughs> I know. Well, he he does whine, but I gotta say, man, some of those tips in front and out of midair, yeah, have just, been, just been phenomenal. Um, but yeah, it's crazy. Now the other um, the other series that I did want to get to because I do think Tampa Bay will handle business of the Devils. That would shock me if the Devils not just won a game but got got through to the next round. But Boston-Toronto has been the breakout party so far as they're locked in a tight one in Game 3. But for that Bruins offense, I, I don't remember them ever having this kind of depth before. Maybe I'm wrong, but the, the New Age Bruins in our lifetime, I don't remember them having this many good young players especially. Yeah, and then you can mix in the old guys with them too. You got Backus, you got Nash now too to kind of 
help support and give some leadership to the young guys. But yeah, they look good. They're it's like they're down right now, but yeah, I think they're a team that can really make some noise too. The thing about Boston, yeah, and you mentioned old guys, Chara scores again tonight too. Um, <laughs> yeah. Rejuvenated. Um, but the thing about Boston, like Pasternak is a guy, these weren't all highly touted or highly like top 10 draft talent type guys. Um, they really had to, you know, find these guys and develop them. Donato, they signed. Pasternak has more points, had more points going into uh, game three than the entire Kings team had through three games. So he's been incredible in the playoffs. But I just I'm starting to see a trend here with Boston, where and other teams as well. A lot of these teams are being built. A lot of these players are being built through the draft more so than free agency. Winnipeg, I think their whole team is like that too. It seems like that's where you're going to find these elite level goal scorers and and really quality players later in the draft rounds. Yeah, yeah, and it's like it seems like the new trend is you almost go with trying to develop your young guys, and then when you get to the level where you have, you're a contender, you kind of bring in the old veterans, you know, like Marlo for the Maple Leafs. You know, you bring in an old guy to kind of bring some leadership in and just help the young guys, but you're knowing you're not really relying on them to where 10 years ago it was, you'd be trying to get the guys like in their prime coming in, you know, once their contract's up instead of trying to develop guys. So it's just kind of a shift. I feel like baseball's going through the same thing right now yeah. too. Yeah, they, they certainly are. And, and I just think, too, I mean, the first round might not have had as much drama, might not end up having as much drama as the first rounds in years past. But if, if a lot of these favorites win, Tyler, I think the second round could be pretty special. A lot of these heavyweight showdowns. Yeah, especially because it's just a lot of the teams that are going to be matched up have similar styles. And it's, you know, like the Lightning are finally healthy and have all their guys going. So, you know, they're going to be ready in the second round and see Winnipeg play. They just. They're just a physical playoff team, so it's it's going to be fun. Yeah, I can't wait for it as well. We'll see what the future holds there. Tyler tests on Money Mitch effect. we got to talk football before you go because the NFL's got the draft coming up, but it never sleeps. The NFL calendar is on full bore. I need your opinion on Des Bryant being released by the Cowboys because every Cowboy fan that I've talked to and supporter is totally fine with this move. <laughs> Nobody was like, oh, no, we got to keep him. And, and I think that speaks volumes for why a guy making over $12 million, all-time leader in, uh, I think, TDs and yards for receivers in Cowboy history just felt like it was time, wasn't producing anymore. Yeah, I mean, he really didn't do much last year. And I think I think part of it is with Zeke now, too. I think they know they want to have more of a running game that can run. And it's kind of more of those short passes. So I think it's just – from an offensive style, he doesn't really fit because he's not getting the ball and getting, you know, bombs down the field. He's just complaining, and it, that doesn't work out well in the locker room. So I think they just figured we can make it without this guy, and we'll just draft someone who can probably produce similar to what he did last year. Yeah, I mean, the complaining, too, that's just the, the uh, cherry on the Sunday. You can't keep a guy around. And I, there's – there's nothing that the Cowboys had to do to offer him a pay cut. I mean, Jerry Jones, I guess, you can criticize Jerry Jones for a lot of different things, but he, he got to meet with the owner of the team before they released him, which wasn't a requirement. So that was them being nice and doing it up front. Uh, but there's no need to keep yeah. a guy that's not producing if you are going to play a little differently and if he's going to complain and make all that money. they got a lot of guys coming up for contracts. I think Zach Martin's the big one, the lineman, and they got to get him off the books there and 
you know, it's just it's an interesting time. I mean, they they need receivers. They signed Hearns, and they're going to have to pick someone in the draft to complement their system. Yeah, I thought it was interesting too. He kind of made, and you know, I'm sure some of it he was just better, but he made the comment, you know, he wasn't one of Garrett's boys and kind of wasn't in Garrett's club of, you know, <laughs> players he liked. But you know, I think Garrett probably did that more for like that isn't really a culture fit and if he's not getting the ball he's complaining so it's probably why he's not in the group but I just thought it was interesting airing out all the dirty laundry on his way out (laughs) and saying he wants to play in uh, in an NFC East team but yeah I mean Garrett Garrett wants to keep his job so if he (laughs) whether you're his boy or not if you can help him win games they're going to give you the ball more so you could just tell on the sideline last year there were problems going on I mean he would just be on the bench pouting, and you know, if he wasn't getting the ball, he was just pissed off and marching around. So yeah, maybe I mean a bit of a front runner because the only time you didn't hear it was when they had those really good years, and when they started losing again, then you got the the Des of old to come back. I'm just curious to see where he goes. I know the Redskins were throwing around an NFC East team that could use some receiver help. Green Bay does New England take a chance on him? I don't know if the market for the money that he would probably want would be as good, or does he take a one-year deal and try to prove himself before looking after a big contract? Yeah, I mean, you got to think it's it's a tough one because it's like if you're a contender, do you want to go after someone who's a liability from a locker room standpoint, but a guy you can maybe get one more good year out of if you have a good QB? But even like, you know, something like San Francisco, they need some help <laughs> at wide receiver yeah. big time because maybe you use them as just to get through the year to give Garoppolo some help. <laughs> You don't want to poison him, though. You don't want to poison Garoppolo with that death. Yeah, exactly. That's that's the risk. <laughs> yeah. No, it's fascinating to see. Uh, another guy that got released, Tyler, was C.J. Anderson today by the Broncos. And I think this just sums up being a running back in the NFL. There really is not a lot of certainty or job security. Yeah, it's, running back is one of those things. I mean, you got your elite guys like Zeke now, but – I mean, if you're just a normal guy like C.J. Anderson, your team's got a good offensive line. They can pretty much just plug any fast guy back there, and they can pretty much have the same production you did. So I think they should yeah, probably re. I think they should make a special exemption at this point for running backs in the rookie pay scale because they're just not going to yeah. get their big contracts. They're not going to be around long enough. Well, I mean, you look at like Green Bay; they haven't really had a true running back, and you know, forever since Rodgers has really been there, it's been just a rotation and you have coons or you'd have starts who kind of you just plug in there and they end up getting more touchdowns than you know the guy who's supposed to be the running back it's just yeah. it's all about if you have a good line you can usually get by green bay moved a receiver to a running back <laughs> that's how that's how much they value yeah. running backs uh yeah. yeah interesting to see another uh, interesting nfl storyline is kind of a under the radar ish saga going on right now with the patriots Tyler, Rob Gronkowski has not officially said he's going to be playing next year, although we all assume that that's the case, and it looks like he will. Tom Brady's uh, still in Qatar, I believe, not going to be at their rookie, at their uh, mini camp, I should say, and that's a fairly big deal because he never really misses that. I wonder if there's more to the surface. It seems like there might still be some, some rifts going on behind the scenes, but this is a Patriots team that for all they've done and all, the, and all that they've accomplished – Lost a lot of key pieces and key faces on that coaching staff. So what do you make of this? Is it a little bit of nothing, or is there something to it? I feel like there's got to be something to it. Like, you know, the article came out on ESPN.com, you know, right before the Super Bowl. And 
I'm sure that some of that was exaggerated or speculation, but there was a lot of detail in it for all just to be BS. So it wouldn't surprise me if the Patriots are trying to make it look like everything's great just to prove that article wrong. But if you have those three core guys being together for that long, there's going to be some tension, I think, (laughs) at some point. You know, the more I think about this from Josh McDaniel's perspective, he was probably guaranteed nothing. But do you make that move to stay in New England if you don't think you know in the back of your mind that Belichick doesn't have many years on that sideline left? I don't. That's the thing. Like, He's and that's the other six, part that's right? weird. Yeah. yeah, and it's like, sounds like it was more craft that came to kind of get him to stay and offer him more money. And Belichick really wasn't in the conversation that much. So it's like, you know, does Kraft think the relationship's going south, so he's trying to protect himself? Or, But then, yeah, to your point, if you're McDaniel, I don't think there's any way that you stick around if you know Belichick's got like five years left or something like that. Well, and I know Brady looked really good in the Super Bowl um, and, and still has like lots of years football if he's healthy left, but there's a lot of weaknesses on that team. Um, I, you know, they don't... Getting rid of certain players like a Brandon Cooks, I understand the business side of it, but at a certain point, you have to be accumulating some assets and players that are going to make your team better. We saw all their weaknesses on the defense. Unless they just knock this draft out of the park, they're still going to have a pretty suspect defense when the games really matter. Yeah, and I mean, the whole Malcolm Butler saga, too. You know, what what the real story behind that one, but you lose the M, who's, you know, key guy in your defense. And then, you know, you lose Soldier, you lose Amendola. There's a lot of key pieces that they lose. And they lose a lot every year, but I don't, this, this year feels like I'm done a lot more than normal. Oh, yeah, definitely does. Um, I'm, yeah, I'm, every time that we hear, you know, this, oh, the Patriots are on fire noise, they always figure out a way to either win another Super Bowl or, or make a good run at it. But Brady is in his 40s now. You know, Belichick's going, pushing 70. I, Nothing lasts forever, so. If Gronk really doesn't, if something happened and Gronk didn't play, I mean, offensively, they're going to be in trouble with <laughs> everything they've lost. You got Deion Lewis gone, too. Covered would be bare at that point for Brady as far as weapons. Oh, yeah, and Amendola was one of his most trusted ones as well, too. So, And, and who knows, Edelman's post-30 coming back from a major injury, so there's no there's no guarantee that any of these guys are going to be, be fine. Uh, we'll see. Tyler, last thing on the NFL with the draft coming up next week. This has the feeling for a really good one, a really uh, intriguing one storyline-wise. As a Browns fan, I would love quarterback one and and uh, Barkley fourth, but you never know what's going to happen and what teams might trade up. Uh, do you expect there to be a lot of fireworks in draft day trades, or do you think it will be fairly predictable? I don't know. I... As much activity as went on in this offseason, I just feel like it's going to be a firestorm on draft day. I can never remember this many trades up to this point, and I feel like it's just the beginning. The Rams might just trade the whole team at the rate they're going right now. Yeah, I think they'll, they'll say if we don't win a Super Bowl in three years, we'll just we'll dissolve the franchise because they are really going for it. I think it's just a, it's it's a product of two things. One, we're seeing how important quarterbacks are to NFL success. And two being, there's a lot of quarterbacks that are potentially franchise-changing. 
which I say potentially because you never know. But there's a lot more blue chip quarterbacks than there have been in, in years past, I think, depth-wise. And next year's draft class looks really bare in that department. So you have teams that might be angling up to get their guy. We could see quarterbacks go one, two, three, maybe one, two, three, five, or six. So, um, yeah. I think, and if you have a quarterback, just trade down. That's what the Colts have tried to do. Yeah. Some other teams are probably going to get in that as well. Yeah. So what's your hope for the Browns? I want, I, I think I've settled on Sam Darnold at one because it has to be a quarterback. You have to take. Yeah. You can't keep passing on quarterbacks if you're the Browns. You can't. If you wait till four, there might not be anyone left. Um, so I go him, and I think they're going to get lucky, and I think Barkley will fall till four, but. I'm not 100% sold that he's going to be the guy at four, as crazy as that sounds. Chubb out of NC State might be who they take, uh, the DN. Yeah. Because, you know, look, you, you saw Steven Jackson up close in person in St. Louis. You know, There's no guarantee that a running back is going to make a difference. So Yeah. We just <laughs> talked about, about a waste today. of career. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so that's what I'm thinking, but I think they're going to go quarterback and then running back or – Barkley or Chubb or something like that. But, yeah, I think the Giants are the key to me because Jets absolutely don't make a trade up there to, to not get a quarterback. You have Denver yeah. at five. That's looking like it would be good. Buffalo has the ammunition. Do the Giants take a quarterback is the biggest storyline. And if they don't, what do you do? Do you take Saquon Barkley? Do you take Chubb? Do you trade down? A lot of intrigue there. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> just going through all those teams, it's just it's... – yeah, Case Keenum going to the Broncos, Cousins to the Vikings. It's it's been a wild offseason. I mean, the fact that the Vikings basically ran three quarterbacks out of town to get Kirk Cousins, an NFC Championship quarterback in Case Keenum, and they they yeah. felt like they needed to upgrade That's, to win. I I think I'd take Cousins over Keenum. <laughs> yeah. No, I, and I, I totally agree, but it's just that's that's how desperate we are to nail that quarterback position. Like, nothing matters but getting that right. So, yeah. Fascinating. Yeah. One, one question, one more question. Do you think Johnny is on a roster this year? Oh, it always comes back to him because he has to decide, right? Like, he, he's got the CFL offer and he needs to make up his mind. I, I think he is. I'll say yes. Interesting. I think yeah. definitely. I can see him get, being New England, maybe. He's going to get offered a chance to come to camp, and I guess that's that's where I'm I'm for sure. Like he'll get the offer to try out, be there. I don't know what what's left if he if he could even be on a practice squad. How that would work depending on his eligibility of how many games he played. But I could see a team taking a flyer, making him their second his second or third quarterback, and trying to get him some reps. He might not be ready to be the primary backup yet, but if a team's got a roster spot, yeah. we'll use it on him. I think so. Yeah, that'll be interesting. Yeah, interesting to say the least. So, Tyler Tesson, this was uh, <laughs> this was fun. It's always interesting with Johnny Manziel. Uh, thanks for yep. on, thanks for coming on the show. Appreciate it. We'll see what happens with hockey and if I survive the draft next week. But I'm never optimistic. <laughs> All right, Mitch. Thanks for having me. That's it for today's show. Thanks again to both guests, Brad for Bruns and Tyler Tesson. Thanks again to Tim Adams for supplying the beats, Brian Nelson for supplying the logo. If you like this episode and every episode of the Money Mitch Effect, you can find it on Money Mitch Effect's Facebook page. 
you search it there. SoundCloud, iTunes, and Google Play has all of the episodes as well. Hope you like every episode. I mean, I do, but we have a, a lot of episodes, 141 to be exact, a wide variety of episodes to choose from. We'll have uh, another episode next week. It's going to be an interesting time. Might have to dip back into tennis. It's clay court season starting in Monte Carlo. Baseball season's heating up. We're going to talk about that as well. Big ups to Frankie Lindor. For my Cleveland Indians, for hitting a home run in Puerto Rico, his home country. They had a game there against the Twins, so shout out to him as well. This was the Money Mitch Effect. Until next time, keep enjoying sports, and I'll be talking to you later.